0: Yeah, it's scary. This is the stuff my nightmares are made of.
1: Excuse me up
0: show where we are devoted to bringing you (laughs) (laughs) the snackable hidden meanings behind your favorite songs i'm your host Lindsay tucker journalist and music researcher and i'm here today with aviv rubenstein
2: wow you sound so excited to be here today Lindsay. i don't no
0: i'm a little stressed out today
2: okay well hopefully this episode (laughs) will not stress you out more but it definitely will
0: oh great 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 i can't wait
2: So yes, this is the the snackable. I don't know if it's appetizing, but it's definitely (laughs) snackable. Meanings behind your favorite songs. This is part two in a in a mini series that we're calling Famous Monsters. Um, Last week you heard all about Charles Manson writing a song for the Beach Boys, or the Beach Boys stealing a song from Charles Manson, depending on who you ask. And so the this this uh, this week we continue with a, a lesser known famous monster song
0: what are we doing this week
2: how well first how's your week been Lindsay?
0: <laughs> um it's been all right uh sure. i had to get a new washing machine which is getting delivered any minute now hopefully
2: well hopefully not hopefully it's in the afternoon <laughs> well hopefully, so hopefully it comes <laughs> yes hopefully it comes yeah well I, I look forward to hopefully the installation is a silent process for our sake
0: yeah for sure it's hooking up washing machines so easy uh, i would have done it myself except i want them to haul the other one away so
2: hell yeah yeah so today we are going to be talking whoa, about whoa,
0: what about your week
2: oh you know thanks for asking my week is <laughs> fine i'm in pennsylvania right now you can hear the the difference in quality of the audio potentially i'm in my parents basement which is kind of exactly the perfect environment for us to be discussing this week's song um i i got a new phone i immediately scratched it me too mine's i got a new
0: phone and immediately scratched it too what's up with that
2: what is up with that i like went to the (laughs) store i went to the the verizon store this morning i was like can you i just got this can you just switch it out and they're like no you have to call a which is like a total scam
0: yeah
2: this week's episode is brought to you by
0: Pay us money,
2: bitches. Pay us money, bitches. But I also got to visit with Chelsea Mitchell, who owns the Newtown Book and Record Exchange in Newtown, Pennsylvania, the official record store of lyrics for lunch. If you ever need any records, you can message Chelsea at Newtown Book and Record on Instagram and she will send you whatever vinyl you need. She's the best. Woohoo. Woohoo. That we're gonna do some kind of cross promotion with her in the future. Stay tuned. If you like vinyl, which I do. And also books. Which I don't. (laughs) Okay. Moving on. Before we get into this week's episode, I want to take us on a little trip to the mailbag.
0: Oh, yay. Mailbag me.
2: We have a user review from our iTunes iTunes, uh, Apple Music podcast review. Oh, yeah? This is from Katie Mboka from June 22nd, 2021. An easy and fun listen. Five stars amazingly knowledgeable and entertaining sports podcast and Robert's voice is just great to listen to. <laughs> Winky face.
0: <laughs> what?
2: <laughs> Thanks Katie and Boca.
0: Thanks Katie. Um, I feel like I had one. You did. Oh yes. Do you wish to be famous, wealthy, and powerful?
2: <laughs>
0: be part of this elite organization called the Illuminati Brotherhood. Filled with world what? leaders. We, business. Got the,
2: we got the invite.
0: <laughs> we got the invite, okay? We made it. Filled with world leaders, business authorities, artists, and become rich with your benefit and also be given a new house of choice. Reply me by saying yes.
2: Yes. Should I do it? I think you should. Reply yeah. him. I replied. Um, so thanks for listen- th- thanks for writing in. As always, you can get us at Lyrics for Lunch on Twitter and Instagram. And now on to today's episode. Cha-cha! So, this week, we're going to be talking about a lesser-known, a, a well-known band, lesser-known one of their songs. It's the song, I Desire, by the band Devo.
0: Okay, I don't know why, but I totally thought we were doing Whip It.
2: I said we're going to talk a little bit about Whip It, but oh, it's not did? about all the way about Whip It. Yeah. Okay. Way to read all my text messages.
0: I know, I guess I haven't been. <laughs> so-
2: so this is a this is a two for one episode as as Lindsay mentioned we are going to talk about Devo's greatest biggest hit "Whip It," but only as it pertains to the main song we're going to talk about today, uh, which is "I Desire" and its connection to a famous monster. So, have you are you familiar with "I Desire" by Devo? I don't
0: think so. Let's hear it.
2: Let's take a listen to it.
0: Why are they always wearing weird hats?
2: Oh, that's that's definitely part of the story this week.
0: <laughs> okay. I desire
1: I desire pleasure, to the flag, That your love is-
2: So what are your initial thoughts on this song? It's
0: very unhealthy and codependent.
2: Okay. Tell me more.
0: Um, he, the guy's like, your love is all that matters. But then he's also like putting all of the responsibility on her being like, don't let me, let, let me hurt you. Don't let sure. me bring you down. Um, and then like, I desire your perfect love.
2: Sure. So, so, yeah, unhealthy codependence.
0: And once again, like, putting all of the responsibility on the woman.
2: Sure. I think we have to start a new segment on this show, which is Does It Slap?
0: Does it slap?
2: Does it slap? I guess. I think it kind of slaps. <laughs> this has been Does It Slap? <laughs> Uh, Mark Mothersbaugh of Devo has been quoted as saying, "Everybody writes about the same things in their songs, sex and death, and we just present it with different viewpoints." So, Devo is kind of a a weird, strange mystery band. They have a an entire aura about them that. Okay, let me let me start over. So this, is, so this is the True Devo bio written by the band. Would you like to read the True Devo bio for us?
0: I would. The band devolved from a long line of brain-eating apes, some of which settled in Northeast Ohio around Akron, where members of Devo eventually appeared years after the A-bomb ended World War II. By the process of natural selection, they met and shared the habits of making electronic noises, watching TV and watching everybody else. They called what they saw around them, D, evolution, and called their music, Devo. It made the sound of things falling apart. Spuds yelled and threw things like beer bottles at Devo when they played, but one day in 1977, the Spuds cheered and threw fits because Spud Boys in the cities realized that we're all Devo, Bougie Boy had been telling everyone this fact for years. He told them in Devo's first movie, The Truth About de now that nearly everyone is finding out, here is something else. The five Spud Boys from Ohio are almost uniform in height and weight, and their boot size is 8C. Alan provides the jungle-style beats. Jerry emits debased pulses, and Bob Number 2 adds precise robot rhythms. Bob Number 1 retaliates with sonic mutations, and Mark sprays the entire mixture with alien synthesizer gases. Plus, his voice is used more of the time than the other
2: four they are all following the commands of their genetic codes they're suburban robots here to entertain corporate life forms devo says opposites and rebellion are obsolete the fittest shall survive yet the unfit may live it's all the same
0: that was trippy
2: so i think i feel like that's basically all you need to know about devo and we'll just move on
0: Okay, moving
2: on then. No, so... uh, What are Spud Boys? Good question. We'll get to Spud Boys. Okay. So this is from Vice. Uh, The writer is Andrea Dominic, or Andrea, I don't know. On May 4th, 1970, the Ohio National Guard opened fire on a crowd of unarmed Kent State University students protesting the U.S. military bombing of Cambodia. An art student named Gerald or Jerry Casale or Casale, I think it's Casale, Jerry Casale was there among the chaos of running to escape the the miasma of tear gas and bullets as two of his friends, Allison Krauss and Jeffrey Miller, succumbed to gunshots of an M1 rifle. The incident, which left a total of four dead and nine injured, would go down in history as a cultural loss of innocence, a particularly harrowing example of American political and social unrest during the Vietnam War. It also marked the birth of Devo, the band and multidisciplinary project that Casale would start with a cast of friends impacted by the shooting in the months that followed.
0: Oh, wow. I had no idea.
2: Well, me fucking either until, (laughs) until I started researching this. So what do you know about the Kent State Massacre other than what I just read?
0: Basically what you just told me.
2: Yeah. And so there's like a pretty famous Neil Young song called Four Dead in Ohio. right? Yeah, of course. And so that's not what this week is about. But one of the people that was there was Jerry Casale Casale Casale. I don't know. know know
0: Oh my God, we can't pronounce anyone's names.
2: (laughs) Casale Jerry Jerry Casale, who started Devo. Quote: In the spring of 1970, I was what might be described as a smart, politically aware hippie. He was Casale was drafted, but obtained a medical deferment. And he told this to noise to noisy magazine, um, may 4th changed it all in that nanosecond of gunfire. I was traumatized beyond description. It was, it probably qualified as a nervous breakdown. Well, yeah, the campus was shut down until the fall and Jerry had nowhere to go. So he and his friends, uh, went to the Akron home of Mark Mothersbaugh, who was a part-time Kent state student who, um, He was like a graffiti artist, and his art had caught Jerry's attention. So it it seems as though they were kind of like acquaintances, and he just needed a place to crash. Mm -hmm. So parsing parsing through the aftermath, the pair began collaborating, drawing on Dada and other interwar art movements to create bizarro, disconcerting takes on agitprop posters, 50s ad graphics, and religious pamphlets. They started also playing music. Casale on bass and Mother's Ba vocalizing over an early Moog synthesizer, hoping to capture the sound of things falling apart, right? So this idea of de-evolution, this was baked into their, it, I, it, I know it says it in their true bio, but <laughs> this is truly baked into their, their inception.
0: Yeah. Wow.
2: Even before the shootings, Casale said that he'd felt American society regressing and he even had a name for the phenomenon, deevolution, or Devo for short.
0: Wow. I love a good societal critique.
2: Oh, sweet baby angel. <laughs> so this is from a Rolling Stone article called Devo. It, it came out in December of 1981. So it's called Devo, 60s Idealists or Nazis and Clowns. Whoa. So this is from 1981. Quote, it was nearly a decade ago, 1972, when Devo formed in Akron. Mother's Ball and Casale enlisted their brothers, guitarist Bob Cassell, Bob Number One, and Bob Mothersbaugh, Bob Number Two, along <laughs> with their drummer Alan Myers in their hometown. And audiences threw things at Devo,
0: like they actually did.
2: Yeah. So these are the Spud Boys, right? The Spud Boys are the names that they have for like kind of the people that they. It seems like kind of a derogatory term for the people that they grew up, grew up around and were playing in front of. But no one liked what the fuck they were doing because they sounded like they were from outer space.
0: <laughs> okay, so they threw things at them?
2: They threw things at them. That's not Beer bottles. It's You're right. Violence is, um,
0: is never the answer.
2: <laughs> never the answer. But I also want it known that there are two Bobs in in the thing. They're both brothers of the other two founder founding members and they're just nicknamed bob number one and bob number two
0: yeah that seems kind of normal
2: it's pretty good from spin in the early and mid-70s casale divi- divided his time between the unknown as yet unknown devo and a blues band called Fifteen Sixty Seventy Five, which was actually famous throughout northeast ohio this is from Cassale. quote mark and i had started buying masks what one kind time- of masks Well, you're going to find out. One time I brought a full head rubber ape mask with me to a 156075 gig and slipped it on before we sang a Bo Diddley song. You can't judge a book by its cover. The people that were dancing stopped. They stopped cheering for the band. They started pointing. And the front man, whose name was Bob Kidney, that's Bob number three, (laughs) turned around and saw me in the mask. And then I got fired. That helped me get more serious about Devo.
0: Wow. Why would you get fired for just wearing a mask on stage? (laughs)
2: I don't know because it was, weird. So it this was is back. So weird. It was weird. This is back from the Rolling Stone <laughs> article from 1981. Quote We never did this to be popular. Beer bottles were thrown at us and people were screaming, play bad company, as far back as 1974. And to come in the face of a thing, rock and roll, that's based on expendable idols and mythological worship with a group. Of pretty much provincial middle class guys who didn't have big drug habits and didn't have long manes of hair and cod pieces, you know, and didn't talk about drinking and bawling and losing your girl. I didn't really expect that we'd be popular. This doesn't make sense, but here's the quote. I didn't really expect we'd, that we'd be popular. I thought if anything, we'd be popular. I thought if anything, we'd be popular because there were like-minded people all over the world in little pockets here and there who would respond to it once they were given the chance to find it in front of them
0: like our podcast
2: like our podcast (laughs) we are the devo of the (laughs) podcast world maybe Uh, reserve reserve your signing of that declaration until the end of the story maybe
0: okay please don't throw anything at us
2: Uh, Yeah, please don't. So in 1976, Devo released a single on their own label. They put it out themselves. It was called Bougie Boy Records, and the song was called Jocko Homo, and it succinctly summed up the the basic Devo creed. So let's listen to a little bit of Jocko Homo.
0: Shine on, America. Oh, my God. I'm scared. What is that? A clown mask?
2: Yeah, it's like a clown mask.
0: It's terrifying. He's running in an orange jumpsuit.
1: Come in, boogie boy. You're late. Have you got the papers that Chinaman gave you?
2: Yikes. Double yikes. <laughs> Yes, Boogie.
1: In the past, this information has been suppressed, but now it can be told. Every man, woman, and mutant on this planet shall know the truth about de-evolution. Oh, Dad, we're all people!
0: Aviv, this is truly terrifying. I-, I told you. Am I getting brainwashed right now? Yes. is a, this is not a song.
2: Well, it's getting get
1: in there. <laughs> because uh, we lost our tail, need more enough, some little tail, I say it's all just wind and sail, are we not men? Are
0: we not men? So how did they make this video?
2: So that that's a good question. We're going to talk all about their videos because this is made in 1976. So this is before MTV. And I know we had talked a little bit about like what music videos were before MTV yeah. with the talking heads. And so a big part of Devo's kind of, I don't want to say evolution, but Devo's rise was the fact that they wanted to make films. They didn't want to be a rock and roll band. They wanted to be like an art installation mm-hmm. group and do that visual art and video and music and everything together right which is why you have this kind of experimental film in the beginning and also the uh i have to i have to say that the the d-e-v-o neon lights in the beginning is like a nod to a famous experimental filmmaker called hollis frampton um who did like an alphabet an alphabet thing where he started replacing letters with neon signs yeah. and stuff. So, what what are you looking at right now?
0: Um, some table gyrating of people in, um...
2: Are they, like, wombs, right? Yeah, cocoons? I... Cocoons?
0: W- they seem like cocoons. Yeah. Kind of like a straitjacket.
2: Yeah. And there's, like, every... It looks like there's, like, a some kind of medical school address. Okay, so... Let's... Welcome back to a segment. Does it slap?
0: Oh, <laughs> No.
2: So this is this is weird, right? This is like very fucking weird.
0: Yeah, it's scary. This is the stuff my nightmares are made of.
2: Sorry. Okay.
0: <laughs> so But were they rich, like independently wealthy? How are you just like, we knew no one was going to like us and we put out a record on our own label.
2: It takes like, probably took like a few thousand dollars to put out a record back then, which was like a considerable amount of money. But it seems like they said that they were kind of upper middle class. They weren't like independently wealthy. And this record was not in a bunch of stores. They like put it out themselves in that they had like suitcases full of them that they were taking to their shows.
0: Okay, but people were going
2: to their shows? Some of them. Back in the 70s and 80s, like especially mid-70s, you would just get booked at a show for being a band, right? Bands weren't a dime a dozen. There's There's a famous story from the book Please Kill Me about the formation of the MC5, which was in the late 60s. Do you know the band, the MC5? No. They sang a song called Kick Out the Jams, Motherfucker. And so they were walking they were from Detroit and they were walking around Detroit just telling people that they were in a band. And then the Velvet Underground's manager called them because the Velvet Underground was coming to Detroit and they had heard that there was a another band in Detroit that could open for them. Oh and God. so they ca- they called the the guys from the MC five and they're like, Do you want to play? And they're like, Yep. And then they have to they had to learn instruments and write songs specifically to open for the Velvet Underground. So this is still in the early days of like kind of diy garagey rock and roll right so you can get okay. booked places okay um so it's tough to hear the lyrics but do you want to do a dramatic reading or should i of the lyrics of jocko homo
0: they tell us that we <laughs> lost our tails
2: that's pretty dramatic
0: you said dramatic
2: i did say dramatic
0: evolving up from little snails i say it's all just wind and sails are we not men we are devo we're pinheads now we are not whole we're pinheads all jocko homo are we not men D E V O. it's
2: pretty pretty good uh pretty good dramatic reading
0: <laughs> been practicing
2: jocko homo was an underground hit in america and europe
0: what the heck what is the jocko homo
2: that's the name of the song
0: but what is it supposed to mean
2: I don't know. I don't think it's like a homosexual thing. I think it's more like homo sapien.
0: Uh-huh. I would like agree a, with that. But what is like Jocko?
2: A, like jo- Like a jock? Like a football jock? I honestly have no fucking idea. Jo- Jocko homo means monkey man. Yeah,
0: <laughs> okay.
2: According to song facts
0: oh you should always read the song facts before the episode of you
2: apparently so but this this is this is a pit stop to be honest with you so jocko homo <laughs> means monkey man mother's ba was a student at kent state when a friend gave him a pamphlet called jocko homo heaven bound king of the apes and so that's the that's the an inspiration for the song okay oh, is man. that
0: why he wears the ape mask?
2: I suppose so. Jerry, Cas- <laughs> Jerry Casale told Song Facts that Giacomo was Devo's position statement. Quote, It was our mission statement saying, hey, look, humans are making up stories about why we're here and how we got here and who we are and what our importance is. And it's basically all rubbish. It's absurd. You don't know what's going on. And that's okay. In fact, if you admit you don't know what's going on and you admit that there are alternate explanations for things, you're already better off. There's a lot of things that you won't do because you would quit believing in ridiculous things that drive you to actions that cause more pain and suffering in the world. It was kind of like a Dada self-effacing statement. Like, look, we're all pinheads on this planet together. Okay. Okay.
0: Well, the video was terrifying.
2: Certainly was. So, Jaco Homa was an underground hit in America and Europe.
0: How does this a video like this spread? We didn't have the internet.
2: I don't know. This is this is this is another one of those things where, like, I kind of don't, still don't know. Okay. If there, if we have any listeners who were around in the rock scene in the seventies, like, how did you see videos? <laughs>
0: They were projecting them at nightclubs.
2: Must have been right, I guess. And this is like art space stuff. I I have to assume that like there would be copies of this that got sh- passed around between like art schools or you know hipsters or whatever. Um. So by the time Devo played Max's Kansas City, which is actually a bar in New York called Max's Kansas City, okay, in November of 1977, they had already earned a fan in a musician called david bowie what so david bowie in 77 a child
0: rapist apparently
2: yeah i just heard about that i need to i need to research that but that's that's upsetting yeah don't have heroes kids never um so he introduced them on stage saying devo was the band of the future and he also announced that he'd be producing the group's debut album in tokyo that winter
0: wow they just hit the
2: jackpot. He actually never got a chance to produce the record because he got tied up filming a movie called Just a Gigolo.
0: Just a Gigolo.
2: Yep. But he did end up helping on weekends. The producer duties went to friend of the show Brian Eno.
0: Hmm, friend of the show.
2: Friend of the show Brian Eno in Cologne, in Italy. And so it seems like they're all they're set up to succeed, right? They've got David Bowie's backing. They've got Brian Eno, who's like an amazing producer, who's producing stuff for Talking Heads like this year as well.
0: Yeah. Right.
2: Talking Heads 77. Yeah.
0: So now Devo just hit the jackpot.
2: Yeah. They think that they've hit the jackpot, right? The uh, the art, the art rock jackpot. Yeah. Because, you know, they weren't bad company or slow dive or whatever. (laughs) Jerry Casale says, so how do you change things? Subversion, that's how. Who does it best? Madison Avenue. They get people to buy things that are bad for them every day. So that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to use subversion to sell people things that they didn't know that they wanted.
0: What? I was getting brainwashed. Yeah, Josie and the Pussycats.
2: You're, yeah, <laughs> right. But also, like, like I think that he, he, the implication... Or the assumption is that he wanted to use it kind of benevolently, right? He wanted to use Madison Avenue's subversion tactics to get people to buy the fact that, like, we're all... To wake up? Yeah, to wake up, I guess. Stay woke, guys. (laughs) So, other songs... So this, so, so this song was kind of a hit, but there, there were other songs, like the band's deconstructed 1978 rendition of I Can't Get No Satisfaction, that were a little more confrontational, a little less subversive. So this wasn't exactly a cover. Rolling Stone calls it a correction. The band, oh, the band described it as a correction. It bewildered Mick Jagger and television audiences alike. With clanking mechanical samples and Mark Mothersbaugh's arrhythmic yelping.
0: Free Britney. Britney Spears covered this song too.
2: Oh, did she? Yeah. Well, not like this she (laughs) did. Devo's version of Satisfaction. This is from SNL in 1978.
0: they're wearing the yellow devo suits that they were wearing in the first image
2: in the in the I Desire album cover yeah,
0: yeah.
2: so tell me what you're seeing
0: they're very twitchy
2: yeah they're like moving around like a robot
0: it's like the Beatles if the Beatles were mechanical robots
2: yeah yeah like they're in the Hall of Presidents right (laughs) but they're human beings right they're doing it on purpose and the the,
0: it's fast too
2: it's fast and the lyrics are a full beat off they're like a full beat ahead
0: yeah it's not unlike Talking Heads
2: no, it's not unlike Todd Cantz, right? So, so there is a kind of a, a art rock post punk movement that's starting to happen. Yeah. Right. Yes. And this this is weird, but like putting this on SNL in 1978, like the, the, I don't know what they think they're watching right now. <laughs> Nevertheless, so so you know, people didn't really get Devo, right? Jaco Homo, uh, okay, guys, and then. Satisfaction, once again, like what are you what are you doing? But nevertheless, with Bowie and Brian Eno backing them, they got a five album deal with Warner Records. Wow, which is a lot. It's a lot. lot of albums.
0: Mm-hmm. That's intimidating. I would be afraid if I got a five album deal. like it how am I going to an... fill these albums?
2: <laughs> well, i don't I don't think that they felt like that was their problem. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is a long quote from Mark Mothersbaugh from a from an interview. So I'm going to be Mark Mothersbaugh for the next couple minutes. Our record company, We Never Felt, understood us. They marketed us as those wacky clowns, but we were art and literature students. I think Rolling Stone, the first time they wrote about us, it said something like, they call this rock and roll. There's a couple of songs that don't even have real drums. And here's two songs that don't even have a guitar. And they're putting a bunch of exclamation points. It doesn't have guitars. It's not rock and roll. They were certainly not wrong. We never called ourselves rock and roll. Other people did. When I was in school, I fell in love with all the movements in Europe between World War I and World War II. That's the time I wish I was alive. I wish I could have lived in Paris or Berlin or Munich or Vienna between the wars just because there was so much intellectual activity going on in the art world. We thought what we were making was always a multimedia concept. We didn't even want to look like a band. It was bad enough that we had to play in clubs. We tried to play at a museum or other locations. And even in those days, we were already thinking we should pitch a circus tent and go, to a, go city to city performing like that just, not, just so we're not in venues. Because we thought rock and roll was already dead. We thought rock and roll had been used up and it was intellectually vapid and there was no reason for it to continue. And we were thinking that we were working toward a new medium, something which we thought was laser discs. But it became film and music mixed together. And we thought, well, that's going to kill all the rock dinosaurs. They're all going to die because none of them can make films. They don't know how to do art. They only know music.
0: Lots of people
2: made films. Beatles, Pink Floyd. Yes. I, this is, once again, this is Mother's ball talking. I know. We were sure that all the Tom Petty's and bands like that, they were all just going to fall away. And it would be artists who take over pop music. That's where we were trying to go. But early at Warner Brothers, we realized that they had no concept of what we were. Why we were doing what we, what we did. And they didn't care. We were in our first marketing meeting where they said, okay, here's our plan for Devo. We're going to do life-size cutouts of you guys because you look so weird in your you know, yellow suits, and we're going to put them in every big record store, and that was it. We said, could we have that money to make a film about one of the songs? And they go, what will that do? What will we do with that? What, what are you talking about? That's the stupidest idea they've ever, I've, we've ever heard. That was their response. Before we even had a record, we had a film. And we had thought that they understood that. It was a constant battle with the record companies the whole time where they didn't get anything we did. Okay. It became a thing where we were constantly trying to double think, overthink everything. We'd think, what could we give them so they're happy and they'd promote the record. We'd watch somebody like Prince or Tom Petty do an album and they'd instantly throw all this money into it and we never got anything. We'd always be sitting there and doing things on a minimal budget. So it made us try to figure out, how do you trick the people that don't understand what you're doing into being on your side? That was what we were trying to do after the first album. We kept trying to figure it out. How do we give them a song that they can maybe put on the radio? We were a totally different kind of band. We decided early on, well, they gave us $100,000. What are we going to do with it? And we go, well, let's pay each band member the same amount of money a Los Angeles school teacher gets. And we did that. And so we'd have money for our art experimentation and for our music experimentation. And we could make those films independently. And we didn't have to depend on Warner brothers to finance things for us. Okay. Right.
0: Yeah. I'm into it. So,
2: so pretty good. I mean, I don't, I don't stand for Tom Petty slander, but you know, Tom
0: Petty, not my favorite.
2: So I actually emailed you a Consequence of Sound interview. It should be sitting in your email. And so we'll do a dramatic reading of that. I'll be Casale and you can be Consequence of Sound. So this is from a Consequence of Sound interview in 2020. This is Jerry Casale talking. So when we were recording Freedom of Choice, which was their third record, we were feeling all that. We were in a rehearsal studio in Hollywood in 1979. We were young and we were motivated. And this functioning unit, this collaboration, where everyone was excited to be there and everyone was excited to work on these songs. And we had basically exhausted our previous catalog of songs that we had written four or five years, over four or five years in our basement and garage days in Akron, Ohio. And now we were interested in moving forward into the next phase of Devo. Of course, as artists and musicians, we were no longer interested in just repeating what we had done, the same sounds this, and with the same beats. and the same type of lyrics we had new ideas and that's what devo was we were experimental we were moving changing artists
0: what did that transformation look like
2: we were being driven by this group idea that we had all agreed on to be devo's version of r&b influenced electronic music as hilarious as that sounds because no one would listen to freedom of choice and say oh yeah that's r&b they wouldn't but there were basic agreements like we were going to change the kinds of beats we would play to they would be more like danceable coming from funk and r&b and i was going to play a mini moog bass not a bass guitar because we were very influenced by songs from stevie wonder and other groups
0: that's unexpected
2: I know. Nobody would know. The Gap Band, you dropped a bomb on me. We loved them. and We loved the Ohio Players and early Prince. Oh my God, Prince. He really did it for us. We actually saw him at some place that had been a roller rink at the corner of La Cienega Boulevard and Santa Monica Boulevard in Los Angeles in 1979 when he still hadn't really broken through, but Warners had signed them. We were invited to the show down there and Prince Comes out in this bur- in, in a Burberry beige trench coat, bikini underpants, garter belts, and hose and six inch heels, and nothing else. And he starts doing songs from controversy before it was released. And here we are as artists, just blown away. We were jealous. It was amazing. We were just listening to what he was doing, and it was so good. It was just so good. So weirdly, Devo for their third record, which is called Freedom of Choice, was deeply influenced by R&B. They wanted to do an electro-pop version of R&B.
0: Okay. Sometimes I hear them talking and I'm like, yeah, I'm all into these guys. And then sometimes I'm like, these are the biggest douches I've ever heard.
2: You know what? (laughs) I feel like that's a good push and pull. (laughs) Keep keep that in mind Okay So Jerry Casale on innovation If we're going to go down Let's go down in flames And that's in retrospect The only proper reaction An artist can have Because obviously There's a risk To being creative Jimi Hendrix released His first record Are you experienced If you told anybody Six months previously With some kind of Surreptitious time warp Here's the music You're going to love Here's the music You won't take off The turntable They would have said You're nuts That shit's noise And guess what Jimi releases it And what happens Every kid wears out the vinyl in the first months and he changes music forever. As an artist, you have to be willing to jump off the cliff, jump into the void like Luke Skywalker. You gotta do it. So we did it. Okay. So, in 1980, Devo releases Freedom of Choice. It's their third record and it is the, it is the record that Whip it is featured on.
0: Okay. Was this their most popular record?
2: This is their most popular record because Whip it is their most popular song. Mm-hmm. So, From Casale, the only song they focused on because they were desperately searching for some reason to make money and not cut us from the roster was a song called Girl You Want. They decided Girl You Want was it. And that's where they kept putting their marketing efforts. And so it was their last peon to Devo. It was like a roulette wheel. They put all their money on black, and guess what? It stiffed. And we don't understand why it did. It wasn't like we didn't like that song because we did. It sounded very digestible, very accessible, but it didn't catch. And so it was like a foregone conclusion when we started our Freedom of Choice tour that this was it. Girl You Want had failed. They weren't going to follow anything with that. They had thought the title track was a non-starter, which is also pretty silly because I love that song. I guess if Axl Rose covered it, it would have been a number one hit. So... We're playing 400, 500 seaters in cool clubs around America, and this guy named Cal Rudman down in Florida, who was a regional programmer who had quite a lot of power, had some morning report sheet that went out to all the disc jockeys in the southeastern United States. DJs had a lot of individual autonomy at the time, and Cal was an old-style programmer. He didn't just take a payoff, money or drugs. He sat down and actually listened to Devo's record, and he decided Whip It was an incredible song. So, on his own, with no graft from Warner, no bribes, he started playing Whippet in a few stations down in Florida and up into Georgia. That part of the United States playing Devo, that was fucking ridiculous. But it caught the ear of several DJs, and within three weeks, I, Jerry Casale, was in New York. And once it hit in New York FM airwaves, we had to stop our tour. Because we had to reconfigure the whole thing for bigger places. Suddenly, we start the tour up once again, and we're in 5,000 seaters. And this thing is spreading around America. And by that time, we're done with our Amer- and by the time we're done with our American tour, it's moving up the charts. And that's when Warner said, "You gotta do a video." Up until then, they thought, "Why are you doing videos? Videos are stupid. <laughs> Why are you spending your money making videos?" There was no MTV. There was nothing. And then there was a dozen videos at that point and they weren't even called music videos. So Devo's most famous song is a song called Whip It. Because when a problem comes along...
0: You must whip it. They're like drinking Budweiser,
2: cheersing. Mm -hmm. To this like band of robots wearing flower pot hats.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Give the pass a slip.
0: what the
2: fuck (laughs) what's wrong (laughs) it's
0: just weird
2: so you're familiar with the song have you seen the video before
0: yeah i think i have i haven't watched it as critically but like i when i think of whip it i think of the red hats
2: yeah so i i'm the same exact way i (laughs) i probably have seen like this one little clip of whip it right not really ever sat down to watch the whole video
0: like we have this cross-eyed woman and these cowboys drinking bud
2: yeah and and he's like he just like whipped someone's clothes off
0: (laughs) yeah whipped a cigarette out of someone's mouth
2: so from salon let's get one thing clear about devo's biggest hit of all time whip it Whippet is not a song about masturbation or S&M. Okay. <laughs> At least that's the story that everyone involved is sticking to. And it seems unlikely that a band who in 1974 had recorded a demo with the lyrics, I need a chick to suck my dick, would demure on this point. Oh. Acor- according to Jerry Casale, who wrote the lyrics to Whippet, it, it's a tongue-in-cheek pep talk satirizing hollow American optimism. Quote, I had been reading Thomas Pynchon's Gravity's Rainbow, and he had all these limericks and poems in there that really made me laugh. Where he was making fun of all the American capitalist can-do cliches, Horatio Alger, there's nobody else like you, you're number one, you can do it. And I was trying my hand at that. Quote Casale from Vice. Irony and satire have been lost in this fascist swing to the right, and now we have a society that we kind of warned about back in the 80s. It went worse than we thought in other words even my worst fears have been su- have been exceeded and it's not funny anymore
0: okay what's the satire that he's giving us though
2: so this is this is a good question right and and so part of it I'm I included that quote which is from these times because I also can't really see the satire. Okay. right? And so I'm allowing him to say, like, maybe that's because you live in today times. Mm-hmm. But this is what Mark Mothersbaugh has to say. We wrote it as a you can do it, Dale Carnegie pep talk for President Jimmy Carter. We were afraid that Republicans were going to get in there in 1980. And they sounded very nasty at the time. And they were running this guy, Ronald Reagan, who seemed like a total. He seemed like he didn't even have a brain. And we were <laughs> like, how can this guy be our president? That's oh, impossible. Oh, sweet honey. That they chose him to run for president. So we were writing this music that was like, you can do it, Mr. President. And then, of course, we were doing a lot of interviews back then, and we'd have to get up at seven so we could go be on a morning talk show while people were driving to work. And we'd be sitting in the other room waiting to go on. And the disc jockey, he'd be like on the air going, you know, I whipped it the other day. Ha, 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 ha. And we we're like, what a fucking asshole. <laughs> we felt very misunderstood. And then it just gave us more reasons to be crabby. But when it came to making the song's now legendary music video, Devo ran with the S&M theme to absurd extremes, right? So the S&M theme in the video is meant to be absurd, meant to be looked at to say, like, this is ridiculous. Yeah. So a little bit about the song's production. The song's drum beat and primary guitar and keyboard lines are each so distinctive that they could likely be identified even in isolation mm-hmm. by anyone who's heard the song a few times. That each part stands so well on its own is probably because Jerry says that he assembled Whippet from two separate sketches: the famous five-note climb of the guitar, bum 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 bum, right, mm-hmm. and the three-note descend.
0: Yeah.
2: So that that is what Mark Mothersbob brought to the group on a cassette tape from his home writing sessions. He was asked when he did the bum 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 riff and he goes, well, I've had that part for about six months and Jerry said, oh yeah, really? And Mark goes, yeah, it's just the first half of Pretty Woman.
0: All right. (laughs)
2: quote mark i had been listening to roy orbison and i really liked the song pretty woman and then i started thinking about how you take things apart and reductive synthesis so i took just the part of the riff and i wrote another ending i took some basic generic thing and put an ending on it that with was with a different sound from a different place little interpolation for you. A little interpolation for you. The Motor Tick drum beat grew out of another collaboration with Captain Beefheart's drummer, Robert Williams, who shared a house not far from Mark with the Go-Go's drummer, Gina Shock. Ooh. Quote, Mark, I didn't really have a good set of drum loops or drum machine or anything. So what I used to do is lug my tape recorder with me over to Robert Williams's house. The Go-Go's would rehearse there. Captain Beefheart would rehearse there. I would take my tape recorder and play a drum beat and go get Robert to play it for me, like, for four minutes on tape so I could write music to it. And so he was the first person that played the whip it drum beat, and he played it without any music. Alan Myers, who is Devo's drummer, then added Phil's and made the quick, relentless rhythm his own.
0: Hmm. Fun.
2: It's one of the best examples of Alan's ability to be, as Jerry called him after his death in 2013, a human metronome and then some. (laughs) So unlike the artists that grow to hate their biggest hits, like Robert Plant, Hating Stairway to Heaven... Devo doesn't really begrudge Whip It its iconic status, though they would have liked it more if m- many of their other songs also achieved it. Mark Mothersbaugh says Even when we finally had a song that did get hit radio play, Whip It, it seemed. Like it, that worked against us because all of a sudden, you know, we're this band and it was almost like a cartoon where you're, you'd be in the studio working on something. And all of a sudden, Joe Schmoe from Warner Brothers Records would pop his head in and say something like, hey, how are you guys doing? Do you need anything? Just want to remind you, you can do anything you want. You can anything you want. Just write another Whippet. It. it was obvious that we weren't that they weren't getting it. We were never taken very seriously. Hmm. So not everyone loved Whip It.
0: OK, who hated it?
2: So the band booked a show called Midnight Special, which I think was like a Saturday Night Live kind of deal in 1981. It was like a it was like a variety show. Mm -hmm. And the host was Lily Tomlin Mm -hmm. and she saw the Whippet video, which as you saw, features a woman having her clothing whipped off by a whip-wielding Mark Mothersbaugh. And Lily Tomlin allegedly, allegedly told producers, get rid of those guys. I love which her. Which they did.
0: They did. Yeah. So, yeah. She's great.
2: Uh, from Casale, the only reason they played us on the radio, unfortunately, was the song whip It could be mistaken for sadomasochism and masturbation. Two popular themes in America. But we're, we're not proud. We'll take it anyway. We can get it.
0: Okay. Well, they do seem crabby about it.
2: They do seem crabby, about. they seem crabby about everything.
0: Yeah, true. These guys hate fun.
2: So uh, this is from Record Review magazine in 1980. The interviewer asked, is there a political significance behind the title of the album, Freedom of Choice? Alan Myers, the drummer, the human metronome who passed away in 2013, says, Yes, there is. The significance is that people are being asked to use their freedom of choice in the presidential election, but it's a really ludicrous. It's like a non choice. Right. Mark Mother's boss says, We might be voting for Ronald McDonald. We're going to put blindfolds on and walk in waving our arms. So much has changed since then. So much has changed. So back to the Rolling Stone article. 60s idealists or nazis and clowns from december of 1981 oh yes in fact devo have been woefully misunderstood until whip it became one of their biggest singles of the of 1980 devo had meager record sales their mix of 50s sci-fi sound effects mechanized rock and roll and offbeat image five yellow jumpsuited industrial ants leaping about the stage in unison was not well received by the mainstream rock audience (laughs) and while while the public mostly ignored them the critics were picking at devo the volt like vultures going after a dying cow lester bangs wrote in the village voice there is nothing older than yesterday's futurism about freedom of choice freedom of choices devo's third album is so pathetic you can almost feel sorry for them but it was their choice to be geeks from the beginning and their was never any reason to suppose their routine wasn't a scam. Hmm. Chris Morris, reviewing a Devo concert for Rolling Stone, wrote, regrettably missing from the evening's music was a sense that Devo have anything in the least to say. (laughs) He added, Devo's show bore all the orgiastic earmarks of a Nuremberg rally for Spud Boys.
0: Oh my god.
2: And to which Jerry Casale responded, well, obviously, we're Nazis and clowns. Ah. They're all right. All those people. They're all right on it. We're assholes. Everything they accuse us of is true. We're subhuman idiots who threaten them. After taking a deep breath, he continued, you know, really, on the largest level, who cares?
0: Yeah. I mean, I guess I just, I definitely have mixed feelings about them. Because if you're like, we're against capitalism and yada 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 but we're participating in this huge way but then we're not because we're just making the music that we want but Mm
2: -hmm. then they're mad at people for not appreciating it
0: the right way
2: right i can kind of understand their crabbiness at the song being misinterpreted as a masturbation song because like if they were trying to do some kind of political satire and everyone's like this song's about jerking off like i, I can understand kind of why they're crabby about that yeah me too i don't know that would this be frustrating too extreme. yeah mother's ba is quoted as saying there are people who buy or don't buy our records because of the critics they call us fascists because we represent something scary to them it's like all these me generation people whose politics are, I want to take as many drugs and consume as much energy and own two condos and a big recreational vehicle and take up as much space for myself as I can. They don't want to be concerned about how they can relate to other people on the planet and their responsibility to other people on the planet. Those kinds of people are upset by Devo politics because if there's a, a politic behind what we do, it's people being aware of their responsibility to other people.
0: I could be totally misunderstanding them, but I feel like they feel like they're the only people who are doing this, who like have a political yes. message. And it's like, dude, that's so Correct. not true. <laughs>
2: yeah, I, th- I think that they, so like, I think I agree with everything that they're saying, except for when they're saying, like, no one gets, we're the only band that, like, David Bowie likes you, Brian Eno likes you, you're playing SNL, like, you have a platform. Right. You're not entitled to people loving your music. And there are people who don't like your music, but do like your politics and like, that's okay. I don't know. But this has brought us all the way back to 1982. In 1982, Devo released a record called Oh No, It's Devo. And it has I Desire on it. So compared to Jocko Homo, this is a very accessible song.
0: A lot more.
2: Yeah. yeah. I okay, so you've got your little refresher, right?
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: So, can I ask you again what you think the song is about? Now that you know that basically everything they do is ultra-political and they kind of have this overblown sense of saving the world from de-evolution,
0: mm-hmm. what do you think this song's about? Maybe it's about them addressing, like, their fan fandom.
2: Potentially. I think that's a good—I think that's a pretty good interpretation. Okay. So this song was written— by Jerry Casale, Mark Mothersbaugh and a third person. It's also safe to say that in the 80s, Devo, they were not huge fans of Ronald Reagan.
0: It sounded that way. They said he not had no, brain. <laughs> no yeah, brain. No brain. Did Devo ever write a song about Trump? Are they are they
2: alive? I, I They are alive. They're still doing it. I don't know if they wrote a song specifically about Trump, but you know, they, I, I'm sure that they did. Actually, I haven't listened to any Devo past 1982.
0: Okay,
2: because I did a, a huge dive for this, but they've they're still political. Okay. So, according to Rolling Stone, Devo got in touch with the the songwriter of this and acquired a, a poem and adapted it into "I Desire." Okay, and th- that songwriter is would be Ronald Reagan assassin John Hinckley.
0: What?
2: Devo got in touch with John Hinckley and acquired one of his demented love poems to Jodie Foster. No. And adapted it into the song you just heard. Whoa, 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 whoa. I need more context. So. Oh, you're going to get it. I still have six more pages. <laughs>
0: okay. So, so they know uh, that Hinckley is.
2: Mm hmm. Hinckley's already in jail.
0: He's already in jail.
2: Yes, for shooting Ronald Reagan.
0: Right. He's sending deranged love notes to Jodie Foster. Correct. And they're like, let me get one of those?
2: Mm Mm-hmm. And turn it into a song and put it out on a record. The stunt not only annoyed Warner Brothers, who learned that they would be obliged to send John Hinckley royalty payments for the song, but also, according to Rolling Stone, won Devo the official attention of the Federal Bureau of Investigation.
0: Oh, of course.
2: Mark Mother's Boss says, Hankley let us take the poem that he had written and we used it for the lyrics and turned it into a love song. It was not the best career move you could make. We had the FBI calling up and threatening us.
0: <laughs> uh, were they saying, kill yourself?
2: Potentially, actually, <laughs> potentially.
1: I desire. I desire.
2: So in November of 1982, Hinkley wrote a letter to the Morning Zoo crew of KZEW, which is a Dallas radio station in which he professes his love for new wave music. And he requests that the station play I Desire 58 times a day. Here's the quote. I like new wave music, especially Devo, since I co-wrote a song on their new album. The song is called I Desire. I want you to play it 58 times a day.
0: To which they replied, sure.
2: In the letter, Hinckley also writes, I used to listen to the song Heroes by David Bowie when I was stalking Carter and Reagan. It got me in a strange mood. What? In March of April of 1980, I hung out at Peach's Record Store on FitzU. Peach's, which used to be on the intersection of Cole and FitzU in northern Dallas, alas, has gone out of business. Alas. So, John Warnock Hinkley Jr. was born May 29th, 1955.
0: Okay.
2: His Wikipedia says he is an American songwriter and criminal.
0: What? American songwriter and criminal?
2: hmm Songwriters first. He's <laughs> written more songs than, he's, than people he's shot.
0: True. I guess.
2: He's best known for his attempted at assassination of United States President Ronald Reagan in Washington, D.C. on March 30th, 1981. So, Hinckley grew up in Texas, uh, in University Park, Texas. After he graduated from high school in 73, his family were the owners of the Hinkley Oil Company. So, he moved to Evergreen, Colorado. Oh,
0: right around the just corner. Just around the
2: corner. For, yeah. And he was an on-and-off student at Texas Tech from 74 to 80. And he eventually dropped out. In 1975, he went to Los Angeles in the hopes of becoming a songwriter. His efforts were unsuccessful. And he wrote... To his parents with tales of misfortune and pleas for money. Dude, I get it. Okay. <laughs> You're
0: like, I'm in my parents' basement.
2: <laughs> I am currently in my parents' basement. He spoke of his girlfriend. Hmm. He also spoke of a girlfriend, Lynn Collins, who turned out to be a fabrication.
0: Oh, sweetheart. This is sad. Septem- my heart hurts a little.
2: <laughs> in September. Well, Don't, don't, once again, before you sign that letter, just wait. In September of 1976, he returned to his parents' home in Evergreen, Colorado. And then in the late 70s and early 80s, he began purchasing weapons and practicing with them. He was prescribed antidepressants and tranquilizers to deal with, quote, emotional issues.
0: Okay, so he has some mental health problems.
2: Yes, clearly. So what do you know about John Hinckley and the assassination attempt of Ronald Reagan?
0: You know, it's not a ton. It's probably like the the uh, public school rendition.
2: Which is, I'm not. I'm not trying to quiz you. I just, you are. You
0: are quizzing me. Yeah. So he he tried to assassinate Reagan. It was a failed attempt. Reagan was obviously hospitalized, and mm-hmm. Hinkley went to jail.
2: Do you, Do you know why he tried to assassinate Reagan?
0: Um, because he had an affair with Jodie Foster.
2: Okay. Well, a very one-sided affair.
0: I was saying, I was making a joke that Reagan had an affair with Jodie Foster.
2: Oh, oh, funny. No. Hinckley became obsessed with Jodie Foster after watching her in the movie Taxi Driver and began stalking her to gain her attention. So he was obsessed with the movie. in, in, in the Have you seen Taxi Driver?
0: Robert De Niro? Yeah. Maybe? It's
2: definitely like a red flag movie.
0: What do you mean a red flag movie? Like a movie like that if in someone... the eye.
2: Yes. If someone says that it's their favorite movie, you just turn around and walk away.
0: Okay. Like Fight
2: Club? Yes, like Fight Club. (laughs) So in Taxi Driver, Robert De Niro plays a character named Travis Bickle, and Travis Bickle plots to assassinate a presidential candidate, and Bickle was partially based on the diaries of a guy named Arthur Bremer, who attempted to assassinate George Wallace. So, Hinckley developed an infatuation with Jodie Foster, who played a sexually trafficked 12-year-old girl. What? Yes, she was 12 in the movie. Ew. Her name is Iris. Iris Steensma in the film. So, when Foster entered Yale University... Hinkley moved to New Haven, Connecticut for a short time to stalk her. There, he slipped poems and messages under her door and repeatedly called and left messages.
0: Do we have any of those on tape?
2: I didn't look too hard. (laughs) I I couldn't bring myself... But from DangerousMinds.net, when Foster enrolled in Yale, Hinckley moved all the way from Texas to New Haven just so he could be near her. He engaged in a lot of creepy stalker behavior that if you saw it in a movie, you'd think it would be overdone. He enrolled in the same writing classes as her. He left her all kinds of poems and messages and called her repeatedly. Eventually, he would squeeze off six rounds outside the Hilton Hotel in Washington, wounding two Secret Service agents and Reagan's press secretary, as well as, via ricochet, the president himself
0: eventually how did we get there
2: so failing to develop any meaningful contact with jody foster hinckley fantasized about conduct an aircraft hijacking or committing suicide in front of her to gain her attention
0: oh my jesus
2: eventually settled on a scheme to impress her by assassinating the president thinking that by achieving achieving a place in history it would appeal to her as an equal because she's famous and based the the situation on the plot of taxi driver, which ends in Bickle trying to assassinate a presidential candidate, but I have to stress, that has nothing to do with gaining Jodie Foster's attention in the movie. I mean, he's like a friend of Jodie Foster's and like, saves her from a bad situation and like murders her pimp and that, that kind of stuff. but like, it's not to get her to fall in love with him. Right okay. That's like not the plot of the movie. So, Hinckley trailed President Jimmy Carter from state to state and was arrested in Nashville on a firearms charge. So, he had nothing he actually didn't care about Ronald Reagan or his policies. He just wanted to kill a president.
0: Right. He's mentally ill and this is the thing people this is why we need better gun laws. Mentally ill people don't need guns.
2: No, they don't.
0: Nobody needs a gun.
2: Nobody needs a gun. So he was penniless. He returned home. Despite getting psychiatric treatment for depression, his mental health did not improve, and he began targeting the newly elected president, Ronald Reagan. For this purpose, he collected material on the assassination of JFK. Of
0: course he did.
2: So, Hinckley wrote to Jody Foster just before his attempt on Reagan's life. This is the only one that I... Other than the lyrics to I Desire, this is the only one that I have, like, re, I'm going to, like, read. Okay. Over the past seven months, I've left you dozens of poems, letters, and love messages in the faint hope that you could develop an interest in me. Although we talked on the phone a couple of times, I never had the nerve to simply approach you and introduce myself. The reason I'm going ahead with this attempt now is because I cannot wait any longer to impress you.
0: Wow. I, I still feel sad for him.
2: I think so. I mean, he clearly need needed help, right?
0: He needed help, and he's like, obviously a very lonely person.
2: Yes. So here's a clip of Jodie Foster talking about John Hinckley. In no uncertain terms that I am doing all of this for your sake.
1: By sacrificing my freedom and possibly my life, I hope to change your mind about me. This letter is being written an hour before I leave for the Hilton Hotel. Jodie, I'm asking you to please look into your heart and at least give me the chance with this historical deed to gain your respect and love. What the fuck? Yesterday it emerged that Hinkley had written a lot of letters to the 19-year-old actress oh gosh, who starred in the 18. movie Taxi Driver. Miss Foster, a freshman at Yale University, gave a press conference to discuss them. Uh, I'm not allowed to reveal any of the contents because I don't want to jeopardize the prosecution. Without, without getting specific, was he threatening, amorous? What was he like? I'm not allowed to say. Um, I, I believe that it's you know, that the, the letters were assumed to have been, you know, love type letters. When did you first realize the connection between the Hinckley and the, the letters S- and the Hinckley who shot the president? <laughs> um well how many Hinckley's do you know? Did you contact the authorities at that point? No, I was contacted by the authorities. How did you, you notice the possible relationship? I felt very shocked, very frightened and um very distracted. Did you have any knowledge then that those letters were forwarded to the FBI? When was the first time you knew the FBI was involved in an investigation of the Hinkley letters? The first time I knew that the FBI was involved was when uh, somebody called me up and said, please come over and talk to the FBI. That, that, and that was also at the same moment, uh, I think maybe 10 minutes later, when I heard about the whole Reagan uh, deal. I didn't know anything about it until that point. So you cannot corroborate reports that are coming from Washington today that the FBI knew about the Hinkley letters as far back as November. No, I have no, I have no knowledge at all.
2: This poor girl.
0: <sighs> yeah, she's this, 19 years old. She's
2: 19 years old, and he is 25. I think at this point, tw- maybe 26. Okay. He was born Very 1955. But okay. yeah, so like their their relationship would be like not out of the question in terms of age it's just that he's like not well right so on march 30th 1981 at 2:27 p.m hinckley shot a 22 caliber rome rg-14 revolver six times at reagan as he left the hilton hotel in washington dc after the president addressed an afl-cio conference hinckley wounded a police officer named thomas Delhan- delahanty and a Secret Service agent named Timothy McCarthy, and he critically wounded the press secretary, James Brady. So though Hinckley did not hit Reagan directly, the president was seriously wounded when a bullet ricocheted off the side of the limousine and hit him in the chest. Alfred Antonucci... A Cleveland, Ohio labor official who stood near Hinckley, saw him firing, hit Hinckley in the head and pulled him to the ground. And within two seconds, Agent Dennis McCarthy, who has no relation to Agent Timothy McCarthy, who was hit, dived onto Hinckley intent on protecting Hinckley. So he so a Secret Service agent dove onto Hinckley intent on protecting Hinckley. Why? To avoid what happened to Lee Harvey Oswald who was shot okay. by Jack Ruby before he right. could stand trial. Right. Another Cleveland area labor official, Frank McNamara, joined Antonucci and started punching Hinckley in the head, striking him so hard that he drew blood. Brady okay. was shot by Hinckley in the right side of the head and endured a long recuperation period, remaining paralyzed on the left side of his body until he died in August of 2014. Oh, my God. Brady's death was ruled a homicide 33 years after the shooting.
0: Whoa. That's sad.
2: Extremely sad. So at his 1982 trial in Washington, D.C., Hinckley was found not guilty by reason of insanity.
0: Okay, that tracks.
2: The defense psychiatric reports portrayed Hinckley as insane while the prosecution reports characterized him as largely Sane. Hinckley was transferred to a it's like a psychotic care from the federal bureau of prisons in ni- in august of 1981 and soon after his trial Hinckley wrote that the shooting was the greatest love offering in the history of the world and was disappointed that foster did not reciprocate his love so the verdict pissed a lot of people off this verdict because like it was super high profile he's like super you know crazy You've got this famous actor and the president involved, and right. so people were pissed. As a consequence, Congress and a number of states revised laws governing when a defendant may use the insanity defense in a criminal prosecution.
0: Oh, my Jesus. What?
2: Idaho, Montana, and Utah abolished the defense altogether.
0: What? That... Uh...
2: Tell, me, tell me. Tell me your feelings.
0: People are mentally ill. Mm-hmm. So... There's just too much. There's so much to say. Yes. When, when people are mentally ill, there are other problems that need to be addressed. And Correct. they are not acting of si- sound mind and body. And they don't need jail. They need therapy, um, all kinds of different options that don't inc- include jail uh, and guns. Like, yes. walk in, I- fix the gun problem.
2: I would, I would go as far as to say that basically no one needs jail. Our entire carceral system is so fucked up because we're using it as like a slave labor force.
0: 100%.
2: But that's just me. In the United States, before the Hinckley case, the insanity defense had been used less than 2% of all felony cases and was unsuccessful most 75% of those trials. The public outcry over the verdict led to the Insanity Defense Reform Act of 1984, which altered the rules for consideration of mental illness for defendants. And in federal criminal court proceedings, in 1985, Hankley's parents wrote a book called Breaking Points, uh, which was a book detailing their son's mental condition.
0: Oh, wow. What did they have to say?
2: I mean basically his his history of mental illness and how it all led to like fake girlfriend and all this shit leading to you know him not being shouldn't be really held responsible for his actions um and you know he killed a couple people like like this is not an insignificant thing that he did but clearly this person is not well
0: he's not well and he shouldn't have had guns
2: and devo just like got him got him some royalty checks
0: that is strange
2: yes it is strange and so before we like move past 1982 and 1983 i want to kind of discuss what the song truly means which you were right the first time oh yeah yeah
0: tell me more
2: so the the song is a love poem about Jody Foster i desire <laughs> i pledge allegiance to the thought that your love is all that matters and your gestures have the power to bring the whole world to its knees. Don't, so that's actually Devo writing. That's Devo the part, wrote that? That's the part that Devo wrote.
0: Okay, what's the part that Hinckley wrote?
2: Don't let me torment you. Don't let me bring you down. Don't ever let me hurt you. Don't let me ah! fail. Don't let me fail because I desire your attention. I desire your perfect love. I desire nothing more than to give you happiness.
0: This is sad.
2: Yeah. It's, it It ain't, it ain't.
0: It's it. like he's having an argument with himself because he knows he's crazy.
2: Yeah. So this is, this is the poem. The poem is, I pledge allegiance to the fact that you're wise to walk away for nothing is more dangerous than desire when it's wrong. Don't let me torment you. Don't let me bring you down. Don't ever let me hurt you. Don't ever let me fail because I desire your attention. I desire your perfect love. I desire nothing more. Wow. this is And that's a poem of, like, you read that and you can tell that that person's mentally ill. I'm clearly not a psychologist, but like.
0: It seems like he knows that he's mentally ill.
2: Exactly. Right? And so I think that Devo, especially because we know now that Hinckley was stalking any president, right? He didn't care about politics. He cared about getting Jodie Foster's attention. And Devo, I think, thought that they were being a bit cheeky by getting a song from the guy that shot Reagan because they don't really like Reagan and they're, they're a very political band, I think that it was, it's a connection that didn't need to be drawn. It's, it's too like far. A, it's a, it's, well, it's an undue connection, right? Also true. If the poem was all about how much fucking Ronald Reagan sucks, roses are red, violets are blue, I'm going to shoot Reagan because he's a motherfucker, Like that song I would be all about. But this feels like a subtle, not so subtle exploitation of someone's mental illness.
0: And Jodie Foster, to be honest.
2: And Jodie Foster, this poor girl who is (laughs) closeted lesbian who can't come out, who was asked, like, are you going to break up with your boyfriend for John Hinckley? And she's like, fucking what?
0: Oh, my goodness.
2: Yeah, it's bad. So, Vincent Fuller is the attorney who represented Hinckley during the trial and for several years afterwards. And he said that Hinckley has schizophrenia. Uh, this person named Park Dietz was a forensic scientist who testified for the prosecution. And they diagnosed Hinckley with narcissistic and schizoid personality disorders and borderline passive aggressive features. Um, so, Hinckley was confined to St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington, D.C. And he was. After he was admitted, they ran some tests and found that he was, quote, unpredictably dangerous, a man who might harm himself or any third party. Wow. He, however, got to do an interview with Penthouse magazine in 1983. Oh, okay. In 1983, he told Penthouse that on a normal day, he would see a therapist, answer mail, play guitar, listen to music, play pool, watch television, eat lousy food and take delicious medication.
0: Delicious medication.
2: In 1987, Hinckley applied for a court order allowing him periodic home visits. As a part of the consideration of the request, the judge ordered Hinckley's hospital room to be searched. And in the room, hospital officials found photographs and letters that Hinckley, in Hinckley's room that showed a continued obsession with Jodie Foster.
0: Oh, my God. Well, did they think it was just going to go away?
2: I don't know. I guess he was medicated. They hoped. Okay. as well as evidence that Hinkley had exchanged letters with Ted Bundy <gasps> and sought the address of Charles Manson. What? Because Charles Manson inspired Lynette Frome, one of his girls, to try to kill Gerald Ford.
0: What? Well, how is Hinkley interested in this? Just because it's president hunting?
2: President hunting, I think he, uh, he like Manson, just wants fame he only wants to kill the president to be famous enough for jodie foster to love him and manson only wants to kill famous people to be famous enough for famous people to want to have him in the club right it's all about this weird fame obsession shit
0: okay so manson was already in jail yes
2: manson was in jail since 71 and this is in 87
0: this is 80 oh this is 87 already okay great great got the timeline
2: So the court denied Hinckley's request for additional privileges.
0: Uh, As one would.
2: In 99, Hinckley was permitted to leave the hospital for supervised visits with his parents. In April of 2000, the hospital recommended allowing unsupervised releases. But a month later, they removed the request. Why? I don't know
0: don't want to
2: know. Don't really want to know. Hinckley was allowed supervised visits with his parents again in 04 and 05. Court hearings were held in September of 05 on whether he could have expanded privileges to leave the hospital in December. Basically like the last days of 05, a federal judge ruled that Hinckley would be allowed visits supervised by his parents to their home in Williamsburg, Virginia. All of the experts who testified at Hinckley's 2005 conditional release hearing, including the government experts, agreed that his depression and psychotic disorder were in full remission and that he should have some expanded conditions of release. And did he? He did. In 2007, Hinckley requested further freedoms, including two one-week visits with his parents. U.S. District Court Judge Paul L. Friedman denied the request. This is from ABC News in June of 2008. Quote, John Hinckley Jr., the love-struck gunman who shot President Ronald Reagan in a bizarre attempt to impress Jodie Foster, is still trying to impress the ladies, and federal officials warn that his obsession, again, could turn violent. An affidavit filed by... the Federal officials trying to restrict Hinkley's movements claim the would-be assassin has at least three girlfriends and possibly as many as five. The document claims that Hankley's rampant womanizing stems from a narcissistic need to impress women and includes, quote, development of several behaviors that have been universally recognized as risk factors for further violence. Oh, my God hinckley claims that he's in love with one of his alleged paramours though the woman has repeatedly told hinckley that she has no intention of leaving her long-term boyfriend it was unrequited love for jodie foster that in 1981 prompted hinckley then 27 to shoot ronald reagan and three others hoping it would impress her so alarmed federal officials who shadow hinckley whenever he leaves the hospital Mm -hmm. filed an affidavit earlier this month this is in 2008 objecting to the plan to give hankley more freedom the affidavit first reported by the smokinggun.com said hankley had developed a disturbing need to impress women again over the past year this has resulted in mr hankley maintaining nearly simultaneous sexual relationships with quote miss a and quote miss g the affidavit claims but i don't know whether this is hankley's fake girlfriend thing happening again. You know what I mean? True.
0: Right, we don't we don't
2: know. Hinckley, now 53, so this was 13 years ago. So he's 53 then, he's 67 now. Has also rekindled a relationship with Leslie DeVoe, a former girlfriend who was incarcerated at St. Elizabeth's, at the same hospital as him, after it was determined that she was insane when she shot and killed her 10-year-old daughter.
0: Oh my god.
2: DeVoe was released from St. Elizabeth's after 8 years of treatment. Then in 2007, Hinckley met a fourth woman, Miss B, who the feds suspect also has become romantic, the affidavit states. The feds claim that Hinckley, who is required by the hospital to keep a log about his relationships with women, is deceptive. Although he told staff he stopped seeing Miss M, he later confided that he has fondling privileges with her. Okay. They suspect Hinckley may be romancing yet another patient at the hospital, according to the affidavit, which was filed by U.S. Attorney's Office for Washington, D.C. Also alarming to authorities is the fact that Hinckley recently recorded a CD.
0: Okay. In jail?
2: The CD is called The Ballad of an Outlaw, a tune about suicide and the lawlessness that he wrote before Reagan's assassination attempt.
0: No, 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 no.
2: So, Lindsay, your prayers have been answered. After a huh. week of searching, I still cannot find this song.
0: What song?
2: The Ballad of an Outlaw.
0: You still cannot find I it? I
2: can't find it.
0: How have my prayers been answered?
2: Because you, you don't have to hear it.
0: <laughs> no, I want to hear it.
2: If I, if I can find it, we'll do a bonus episode. But I've looked and looked and I cannot find it.
0: Okay. Is there an explanation for that? Mm-mm. Then I want to hear from Devo. I want to hear Devo's defense of this decision.
2: No one's ever really asked them even.
0: How is that possible?
2: I mean, the, the only quote that I could find was the one from Mother's Boss saying like, well, the FBI called us. Ha ha, har har har. They, it was a stunt. It was a publicity stunt for them. Right. I, I don't think that they've ever faced consequences for it. Wow. So the prosecutors object to the ruling that gave Hinckley more freedom, saying that Hinckley was still a danger to others and had unhealthy and inappropriate thoughts about women. The ballot of an outlaw, prosecutors claim reflecting suicide and lawlessness, cannot, cannot be found online. I'm, I've, I'm still searching. In March 2011, it was reported that a forensic psychologist at the hospital testified that Hinckley is recovered to the point that he poses no imminent risk of danger to, his, to himself or others. On August 4th, 2014, James Brady, one of Hinckley's victims, died. As Hinckley had critically wounded Brady in 1981, the death was ruled a homicide. Mm-hmm. Hinckley did not face charges as a result of Brady's death because he had been found not guilty of the original crime by reason of insanity. Okay. In addition, since Brady's death occurred more than 33 years after the shooting, prosecution of Hinckley was barred under the year-and-a-day law, which I don't know what that is, in effect in the District of Columbia at the time of the shooting. I think, I think it was like a statute of limitations law.
0: Sounds like it.
2: On July 27th, 2016, a federal judge ruled that Hinckley could be released from St. Elizabeth's on August 5th. He was no longer considered a threat to himself or others.
0: That flip-flopped quite quickly.
2: Well, it took eight years. Yeah, but, but still. before
0: that, it had been years and years of he's a danger.
2: Yeah, still. still. Hinckley okay. was released from institutional psychiatric care on September 10th, 2016, with many conditions. He was required to live full-time at his mother's house in Williamsburg. In addition, the following prohibitions and requirements were imposed on him. So prohibitions. He's not allowed to use alcohol. He's not allowed to possess firearms, ammunition, other weapons, or memorabilia of Jodie Foster, like photos or magazines.
0: Oh, my goodness.
2: He is prohibited from contacting Ronald Reagan's family, the Brady family, Jodie Foster, Jodie Foster's family, or Jodie Foster's agent. He is prohibited from watching or listening to violent movies, television, or compact discs. He is prohibited from accessing printed or online pornography. He is prohibited from online access to violent movies, television, music, novels, magazines. He cannot speak to the press. He cannot what about visi- video games? N- he n- he can play about. violent video games. Se- seems so. <laughs> uh, he is prohibited from speaking to the press. He is prohibited from visiting the homes, past homes, or graves of the current president, past presidents, or certain past or present government officials. Well, he can't drive more than 30 miles from his mother's home unattended or 50 miles even with a chaperone. And he is prohibited from erasing his computer's web browser history. He's required to work at least three days a week and to leave immediately if he finds himself approaching a prohibited place and he has to record his browser history. Although the court ordered a risk assessment to be completed within 18 months of his release, as of May 2018, it had still not been done. So, on November 16th of 2018, Judge Friedman ruled that Hinckley could move out of his mother's house in Virginia and live on his own. Oh my God. Upon a location approved from his doctors. As of 2019, Hinckley's attorney said he plans to ask for full unconditional release by the end of 2019 from the court orders that determine where he can live. He now has a YouTube channel. No. This brings us to the inspiration for the famous monsters series because <laughs> oh. what popped up on my youtube feed nary three weeks ago but a new love song written by john hinckley i'm
0: so excited
2: this one's called majesty of love so this is how we're gonna go out this week on majesty of love this
0: so is sad why does he have so many clocks?
2: I don't know. He always needs to know what time it is, I suppose. Okay. Lindsay, I have a question for you. Okay. Does it slap?
0: Oh, it slaps.
2: It's pretty good, right? (laughs) So, from Vice... Nearly 50 years later, the band Devo's story plays out like an uncanny harbinger of today's post-Trump surreality, something that Mother's ba sees flashes of even in the most unexpected corners of contemporary life. Quote, I was at a birthday party earlier this year for some little kids, and they had this clown that the kids were all picking on. Mother's ba now, by the way, composes music for films like Wes Anderson films. Um, okay. The clown said to one of these little girls, what do you want to be when you grow up? And she goes, rich. And they all went, yeah, and started high-fiving each other. As he replays the moment, mother's ba's eyes widen. Almost a half a century after Kent State, he still looks bewildered. The de-evolution of humans, you know, it's continuing, he says. We were pessimistic, but not this pessimistic. We didn't think it was going to move this fast.
0: Well, I don't disagree
2: that's our episode for this week sources are DangerousMinds.net Salon.com Vice.com Spin.com Rolling Stone ABC News There will they will all be available in the notes for this episode so you can see more of Hinckley and Devo and everything else you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Lyrics for Lunch drop us a line let us know who your favorite famous monster is <laughs> and
0: Email us at lyricsforlunch at gmail.com. If you want to send us a creepy love note or a poem, Uh, you can support the show if you'd like by going to our website, lyricsforlunch.com and clicking support the show. It takes us hours and hours and hours every week to make this show for you. And we do it out of love, but um, a little cash wouldn't hurt.
2: The majesty of love. (laughs) And tune in next week when Lindsay's back in the hot seat, right? Please don't make me do I another one of I certainly hope so.
0: Um, hopefully we will be doing a deep dive into Hallelujah, written by Leonard Cohen, made famous sir, by Jeff Buckley and others. Oh, that's on from Shrek. It is from Shrek.
2: So, until next time, I'm Aviv Rubenstein.
0: I'm Lindsay Tucker.
2: Saying, are we not men?
0: <laughs>
2: no. <laughs> no. We're DEVO.
0: D-E-V-O.